Well, you're going to hear more great testimonies in just a little bit. Uh, but I want to direct your attention to a text of Scripture from Philippians chapter 3. So if you would, if you have a Bible, take it and turn to Philippians 3. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use your phone to look that up. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. So encouraging to hear these testimonies of faith in Jesus Christ and to witness believers taking this important step of discipleship by being baptized. Baptized is, being baptized isn't what saves anyone. It never has and it never will because it never could. Uh, baptism is something that Jesus commanded for his followers to do. One of the first things that uh, a follower of Jesus is to do is to be uh, to identify with Jesus by being baptized. So you make a public proclamation, a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is what baptism represents and pictures as the individual is immersed in the water and comes up again from the water, just as Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on our behalf. And so Jesus commanded that his followers be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In baptism, we are publicly professing our faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, and we are publicly proclaiming that He is indeed our Lord and Savior. In light of these baptisms this morning, I want us to take a look at a great gospel text from Philippians 3. Paul is writing to the Philippians here, and he shares with them his own personal testimony. We've just heard testimonies today of how God has changed the lives of these folks and how they're trusting now in Jesus Christ. Well, this is Paul's personal testimony in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Let me read it for us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, the apostle Paul writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. Let's pray for God's blessing on our lives as we interact with it. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this word about you, this word that speaks of your gospel, which is our only hope. In life and death, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross on our behalf and dying in our place and burying our sin and establishing perfect righteousness on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that you died and rose again on the third day, showing yourself victorious over sin, death, and hell. Anything that could be against us spiritually, you have defeated. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for doing this on our behalf. We thank you for those who have come this morning and have shared their testimonies and have already been baptized and for those who will be baptized. We pray your blessing and growth upon their lives as they seek to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
As Paul shares his testimony here, his personal testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, I want us to see together four essential features of being a Christian. What's it mean to be a Christian? Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you think you know exactly what it means to be a Christian. And maybe you do. But maybe you have a false idea of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you have just sort of a foggy idea of what it means to be a Christian. And the Apostle Paul is going to help us all here to understand the four features of what it means to be a Christian. First of all, the first essential feature of being a Christian is that Christians have undergone a radical valuation recalibration. That's kind of hard to say. Uh, Christians have undergone a, a radical valuation recalibration. Verses 7 and 8 make that clear. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul here is testifying of his own valuation recalibration. Paul's life has been turned upside down from what it was, or rather it's been turned right side up, correct? That what was once valuable to him is now viewed by him as being worthless, indeed as less than worthless. And what was once worthless to him is now of surpassing value. In a word, Paul has been converted. He's experienced conversion In verses 5 and 6, Paul has explained that what he used to value was his religious experience, his own self-effort. Look at verses 5 and 6, what comes right before this. He says he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. The Apostle Paul was the Pharisee's Pharisee. He was checking all the right boxes of doctrine, of practice. And he believed he was right with God. If anybody could get to heaven by their efforts, by their works, then surely it was Paul. But no, Paul came to realize that in order to be right with God, one had to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone rather than trusting in their efforts, in their pedigree, in their works of righteousness. Paul came to know Jesus Christ. He talks about that. He talks about knowing Christ. He talks about being found in Christ. Paul had come to the realization that all his efforts, all his good works, all his theological learning, his family pedigree meant nothing before a holy God. It didn't get him anywhere with God. In fact, it meant less than nothing. In verse 8, he will say that these things that he formerly treated and and trusted in and treated as valuable were in fact rubbish. Literally, they were dung. They were excrement is the word he uses. Paul's former spiritual accomplishments were not assets for him spiritually. They were ugly liabilities. 
what he thought was going in his win column were actually piling up of losses. They were liabilities to him because they caused him to trust in himself for salvation rather than in Jesus Christ. They caused him to trust in his own righteousness, in his own abilities, in his own accomplishments. Paul had come to the place of counting all of his spiritual credentials as being loss for the sake of gaining Christ. You see, in the process of becoming a Christian, Paul experienced what all Christians will experience, a radical valuation recalibration. The things that we once trusted in, the things that we once valued and prized and patted ourselves on the back for and took pride in, we suddenly view these things as being what they are, worthless before a holy God. As being the very things that are keeping us far from God, as being not things that brought us into God's presence, but as things that were keeping us from God's presence, walling us off from His grace, because we are trusting in ourselves, not in His grace. And once we see that, once we realize that, we'll gladly lose all of our spiritual history and credentials in order to gain Christ alone. Jesus shared two parables during his lifetime that helped to illustrate the surpassing value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. He says, The kingdom of heaven, the gospel, entry into the kingdom of heaven, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, the gospel is like that. When you truly see the value of Jesus Christ and of his perfect finished work on the cross, for us you're willing to exchange all else to forget all else that was back there in your past in order that you might gain christ and so jesus becomes for us like that treasure hidden in a field or like that pearl of great price and we're willing to sell everything else in order that we might possess him in order that he might own us paul is in effect here in a Philippians saying that for him he came to realize that Jesus is this treasure hidden in a field that Jesus is this pearl of great price that Paul was willing to sell all that he had in order to gain Christ in verse 8 Paul says that nothing is more valuable than knowing Christ he has gladly exchanged all that he once had spiritual confidence in so that he might have Christ. This radical valuation calibration is the essence of saving faith. This is something that every Christian experiences as they come to faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, we see Christ as being more valuable than anything else. By faith, we see Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. By faith, we stop trusting in our own helpless efforts our own attempts at righteousness our own spiritual accomplishments and we trust instead in jesus christ alone to save us and he becomes to us more valuable than anything else i wonder if you've come to that place where you have counted 
all your efforts as loss and have come to Jesus seeing him as being more valuable than anything else. What are you trusting in today to make you right with God? It's a question for all of us. Ask yourself this. What am I trusting in today to make me right with God? Are you trusting that you're a good person? What does that even mean? Good. By whose standard of goodness? You say, well, I'm better than most. Well, that's your standard. That's not God's standard. God's standard is perfection. God's standard is holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God requires perfection. And there's not a one of us in here that is perfect. There's only one perfect man who's ever lived, and it was Jesus. All the rest of us are sinners. We're sinners by nature, we're born into sin, and we're sinners by choice. We're sinners in thought, in word, in deed, in attitude, and in motive. We are professional sinners. So you can't say, well, I'm a good person, because you're judging yourself on a curve, and God never does that. Maybe you're trusting in your upbringing in a Christian home. Maybe you're trusting in your church attendance to get you to heaven. Maybe you're trusting in a profession of faith that you once even made at a camp or some other event. Maybe you're trusting in the fact that you were once baptized. Maybe you're trusting in the fact that your parents think you're saved, so you must be saved. Listen, none of these things will save us. All of these things are outward Boxes that we sometimes check and think that that somehow creates an asset, a win for us spiritually, but when in fact it is the very thing that is keeping us away from God and His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to count all of those things as losses so that we might gain Christ by faith. The only thing that will save us, the only thing that will make us right with God is by trusting in Jesus alone. And once we see that, we'll gladly trade in all of that other worthless stuff for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Friend, the Christian has undergone a radical valuation recalibration. Our efforts at spiritual redemption are worthless. Christ's accomplishment on our behalf are all sufficient and of far surpassing value second feature of being a Christian. Christians experience the peace of justification. The peace of justification. Verse 9. So that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul here talks about knowing Christ, about gaining Christ, and about being found in Christ. That phrase, to be found in Christ, speaks to the reality of the Christian's spiritual union with Jesus Christ. At the moment we're saved, at the moment of faith, our lives are spiritually united with the life of Jesus Christ. So that the perfect life that He lived, it's as though we had lived that life. So that the 
Sacrifice for sin that he made on our behalf as a sinless substitute is credited to us and to our account. And our sins are atoned for. Our sins are covered. Our sins are forgiven. And all of that comes about through the spiritual union we have with Jesus Christ at the moment of faith. To be found in Christ. Colossians 3.3 says it this way. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here's your life. Here is Christ. At the moment of faith, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so Jesus Christ makes up for all your deficiencies. His all-sufficiency makes up for your all-deficiency. What you could never earn on your own, what you could never do on your own to make your way back to God, Jesus Christ has done it all. And he offers it to you as a gift by faith. This is what it means to be found in Christ. Paul gets even more specific about what it means to be found in Christ in verse 9. He explains, first of all, what it's not. To be found in Christ is not to have a righteousness of our own derived from the law. No one can earn their way. No one can obey their way back to God. No one can be righteous before God by law keeping, but instead our righteousness as Christians is a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. In other words, we're saved not by works, but by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness comes to us as God's gift through His Son Jesus and we receive it individually, personally, by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save us. Righteousness is what we call justification. It's a big word. We don't use it too much commonly. But justification is a biblical and theological term that refers to Christ, the Christian's legal standing before God at the moment of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's an unchanging, unaltered status before God where we are declared by God to be righteous in His sight. It is this righteous declaration that causes us, therefore, to be right with God. It is a righteousness that's not of our own doing, but is accomplished through the sinless life of Jesus, His substitutionary death, and His victorious resurrection. When God declares us righteous, this means that we're no longer guilty. It means that we're no longer the objects of God's anger and His just wrath. It means that Jesus has paid the price for all our sins, that He bore them fully in His body on the cross, the just wrath of God against our sins. So when we are justified, we're no longer guilty in God's eyes. Instead, because we've been declared righteous by Him, we've been forgiven. We've become the children of God. We've become recipients of God's love and blessing. And this brings the Christian peace. Peace that passes all understanding. Peace that is rooted and grounded in our irreversible legal standing before God, secured by Jesus Christ and received by faith in Him. We're justified in His sight. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Again, notice that term, in Christ Jesus. It means that we are spiritually united with Christ in His sinless life, in His death, burial, and in His resurrection. And that's what baptism represents. That's what it pictures. 
pictures us identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So Christians experience the peace of justification. Thirdly, Christians grow through the purifying work of sanctification. The Christian experiences progressive sanctification, ongoing, increasing purity of life, increasing, ongoing reflection of Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 10, Paul explains that he has gladly exchanged his spiritual losses for surpassing spiritual gain in order that he might know Christ. To know Christ, to really know Christ is not just to know facts about him. It's not just to believe that he existed. It's not just to believe that he was even the Son of God. Even the demons believe that, James tells us, and they tremble. They believe that. To know Christ is to know Him savingly. It's to know Him personally. It is to personally trust Him as your Savior. It's to know Him in a saving relationship and it is to be known by Him. As we have seen, to know Jesus is to gain Him. It is to be found in Him. It is to exchange all for Him. And it brings along with it the power of His resurrection. That's what Paul says here. Verse 10. To know the power of His resurrection. Now this is amazing. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead on the third day is the same power that works mightily within the Christian, transforming us into greater and greater Christ-likeness. We're not left on our own to figure it out. God has sent His Son into us through His Spirit and given us the very power that raised Jesus from the dead to help us become more and more like Jesus Christ in this life, here and now, right now. Helping us be a godly man, a godly woman, a godly husband, a godly wife, a godly student, a godly employee. Growing us progressively more and more like His Son Jesus. But as Christians, in knowing Jesus, we know not only something of His resurrection power, we also know the fellowship of His sufferings. We share in Christ's sufferings. That's what Paul says here. Following Jesus means that at times we will suffer for His sake. People will make fun of us. People will pass us over for promotions. People will sometimes persecute us. But as we follow Jesus... We're blessed and comforted to know that just as they treated Jesus this way, so Jesus promised they would treat us the same way. And these sufferings help to conform us to His death. That is, our sufferings for the sake of Jesus help to make us more like Him, more like Him in His willingness to do the will of His Father even to the point of death. And as we are conformed to Christ's death, we lay our wills aside and say, yet not my will, but your will be done, Father. Just as Jesus had done in the garden. And as we're conformed to the image of his death, we die to our flesh. We progressively die to our fleshly desires. And we progressively walk in newness of resurrection life. Again, pictured beautifully in baptism. 
Christians grow through the purifying work of sanctification. And then finally, the fourth feature, Christians look forward in hope to their eventual glorification. Verse 11. In order that, Paul says, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the Christian's great hope. All of what Paul has said has an ultimate goal in mind, and that is found here in verse 11. It is in order that Paul might attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Christian's great hope is that this world is not all there is, that this life is not all there is, that there is a new life to come, there is a new world to come. And with this new world, the Christian will experience what we call glorification. When, after this life and when Jesus returns, we are finally rid of our body of sin and selfishness and we will have new glorified bodies with hearts that will perfectly obey and serve and worship the God who made us and the Savior who died for us. Paul makes clear that he hasn't obtained the state of glorification yet. He's still waiting for it. Look at verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so my charge to those who are being baptized this morning is to press on. My charge to all the Christians who are here this morning, press on. There's a new world coming. There's a new life coming. And God has promised through His Son, Jesus Christ, to make you new entirely, to glorify you along with Him in heaven. The goal of glorification in the future helps us to press on toward the goal of Christ-likeness today. I wonder this morning, do you have that hope today? Do you have the hope of heaven? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior, and is He in the process of making you new today? Is your future certain, knowing that you're going to be glorified in heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and because you've received that free gift by faith? You can know all these things for certain today. By counting as loss all your former spiritual efforts, by counting as loss all your former attempts to try to earn your way back to God, and by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you. And by losing all in this way, you will gain Christ. And He is of all surpassing value. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for those who have come to testify of your goodness in their lives, to testify of their faith in Jesus Christ and to be obedient to baptism. The first step of discipleship, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ after believing. Lord, we pray that you would bless them, grow them, guide them. I pray for any here who are not sure if their sins are forgiven. They're not sure if they've really trusted in Jesus or not. Pray that they do so today, simply trusting Jesus Christ to be the all-sufficient sacrifice for their sins. May they rest in Him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.